The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Reference to any third party, specific product, process, or service by trade name, trademark, or otherwise does not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by salient. Welcome everyone to the next installment on the Epsilon Theory podcast. We've got a full house today here in San Francisco. Uh, of course, Ben Hunt, he's here, Jeremy Radcliffe, and we're joined today also with Deputy CIO Rusty Gwynn. Welcome everybody. Thanks, Michael. That's Michael Correo behind the glass, as they say in the uh, sports radio biz. Yeah, and, and that's that's the guy quoted in last week's Lead story in Bloomberg Business Week, Dr. Ben Hunt of Salient Partners. Terrific quote in Bloomberg Business Week. We think that you should try and insulate yourself as much as you can from the casino that central bankers are running. Terrific quote. Congratulations. Thank you, Michael. It's always good to be quoted by our friends at the leading publication of that bastion of. <laughs> and especially of saying something smart. Well, 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 that's right. At least I wasn't I wasn't miserably misquoted well, that time. It's getting very meta, right? With all, all of our talk about narratives and development, and now we're we're getting your narrative out there. It's pretty neat, isn't it? Right. So I've got a couple of notes about whether I'm turning into a missionary myself, to use the the game theory term, and uh, I kind of like it, man. Yeah. I kind of like it. Yeah. I, you know, I, it's funny. This I promise this will get into the the, the topic du jour, but uh, there's this famous story. It was by uh, Michael Crichton, the the, the author, yeah. famous Jurassic you know, Park, you know, Andromeda Strain Ooh, was yes. his first one mm-hmm. of my one of, one of my faves, right? And so uh, uh, Crichton was a was a physician. And of course, he went, he started writing. He went, he went Hollywood, right? And his his comment about the the press and being quoted in the press was that look. I, it's, 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 it, he had gotten this story from uh, from from Murray uh, Gelman, the, the the guy who invented or discovered the quark, uh, the the physicist who discovered the quark. Learn something new. Yeah, there you go, there you go, right? And he said with it, that he was talking with with Murray, who was also kind of went Hollywood like like Crichton did, and they were talking about the Hollywood press. And he said, you know, it it really struck him one day that that you you every time he's been mentioned in a in an article, every time an article's been printed. Jeremy, you and I have talked about this before, and it's something he really knows a lot about, right? It's a movie he was involved with, or a you know a business deal, or or Murray was saying yes, some scientific discovery, something he really knows something about. They realized that the newspaper just totally butchered the story, that that the, the resemblance of what actually happened to the story is just 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 minimal. Fact, and, facts are wrong. Meaning is distorted. It's just all yeah. wrong. It's yeah. just all wrong. The whole thing. And and yet. And yet, this is the cognitive dissonance we're going to talk a little bit about today. He says, I'll turn the page. It'll be an article about something I don't know much about. And his example is, you know, the Palestinians, right? And he will read it as if it's the gospel, right? And we, we all have that innate tendency. And, it, and, it's, and it's why Bloomberg and newspapers exist, right? Because they are believed. Well, we're, in, we're inherently trusting, 
right? If you believe in the, if you know, I, I think, I think that's the case. We're biologically evolved to respond to these things. Yes. We are absolutely biologically evolved and socially trained over tens of thousands of years is what it means to be a social animal that we swim in this ocean of communications. And we, we are truly hardwired to say, Oh, that's a, that's a signal. And the, the only, the only measure, this goes back to information theory. The only measure of what makes a signal useful is that it it changes our opinion about something. There's there's no truth with a capital T when it comes to information. So we are hardwired to take these signals and to ascribe some meaning or truth to them because it does change how we how what we know about a subject, particularly on subjects where we don't know a lot. Right? So for Crichton it's reading about the Palestinians as opposed to some Hollywood deal he was involved with. And for all of us today, it, I, I think it's it's almost everything, <laughs> anything to do with markets or international politics or the topic we're going to talk about, Turkey, what happened in Turkey. Let's dive into that. Your note, uh, uh, Reichstag fire was uh, one of your most popular, if not your most popular. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it really struck a chord. Note to date. And uh, that's certainly a case of a, uh, a, a watching a, a, a narrative form in real time. Uh, That's right. You know, with with that coup going on, I think it was a Friday. I think that was a Friday evening, right? It was uh, over here. And did you guys follow it on Twitter? By the way, yes. that, that's where I got most oh, yes. of my information from. It. I, I thought that was really interesting. I when I observed myself getting information from Twitter, it was the first time that that it happened with me. I don't know if it's, you guys. It's had not experience. the first time I've gotten into information on a developing news story from Twitter. In fact, I think that's one of the great benefits of of being on Twitter is being able to follow some of these live breaking things. But it's typically something less meaningful, you know, a sports uh, right, trade deadline right, right, or something right, like right. that. Um, in this case, it was a coup. You know, and and I'm uh, you know I'm of an age where. I haven't. Did you put air quotes around that? A coup? Did well, you put yeah, air quotes? Yeah, around? you should have. You, you, you know, you know what I feel. How I feel about the, uh, the 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 nature of this coup. But regardless of whether it's a coup or a coup with air quotes, I mean, I haven't been around for a lot of coup. You know, live coups in my life. Right. This is something. This feels like something out of the '60s or '70s. Right. Um, and, and so that I just thought that was. And watching it with watching it over Twitter develop. Uh, and the narrative develop over you know, watching the narrative on, develop was, it truly did, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Well, and, and, and the the rapid response. I mean, you know, even now, you know, it's 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 within a matter of hours that even on Twitter, politicians, you know, our own Secretary of State, um, you know, Boris Johnson, having newly ascended into his role in the in the new government in the UK, all of whom had to put their thoughts out there and and share very early views, which is which is uncharacteristic. And and one of the the beauties of Twitter as well is that in the same way that news, it's it tends to be very raw, unfiltered, and you know hasn't necessarily yet gone through the narrative machine. Likewise, uh, even some of the politicians are out there probably before they used to be, and probably with a little bit less of the oversight of crafting a perfect press release or statement or or press conference. So that was interesting as well. And and maybe talk, maybe let's talk you know a little bit about um, the U.S. perspective. Uh, and, and on Turkey, we and how and how our government. You know, I know if you, John Kerry had or uh, uh, had had some had some things to say about you know about the coup, um, but Barack didn't have really uh, much to say about the coup for and it didn't reach out from what I understand to Erdogan for uh, for a number of days. Um, and it was and in my my view is that he was probably figuring out what. <laughs> what, what well, I think that's smart. Yeah, I wouldn't want to reach out either. 
right? I, I think that, uh, and, and, and I wanted to cover this as well, because it's not just what the international reaction was, although I, I want to get to that, but I, I do think it's important to talk about what, what, what I think, what I, I think we think around the table actually happened, because when, when we talk about being a fake coup, we don't actually mean that Erdogan and his cronies you know, were actually flying the jet planes that, you know, strafed the, 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 the parliament building, right? There were actual plotters. There were actual elements of the military that thought, hey, let's do this. But what I, what I also believe is that they were encouraged, they were known about, and that they were, in a sense, the patsies for a purge that had been intended for for for, for years now, I, I, that, that's what I well, think. You, you don't happens. you don't come up with twenty five thousand name purge list that can be turned on within right the next hours the, the next day without having some idea that that was coming. Well, right. Although the, the the mental image of Erdogan sitting in his hotel room and where was he in, in a, on a, on the beach somewhere when all of this went down, you know, on his laptop typing out the names of twenty five thousand school teachers that uh, <laughs> that were uh, on the list. To be purged, no, it's 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 ridiculous to even consider that. Uh, and I, I'd like the there was the headline in the Wall Street Journal the other day that Turkey's intelligence service was surprised by the lack of clues they had about the the the, the coup attempt. I mean, really? Yeah. Well, there's a good reason why you were surprised by the lack of clues, right? Because this was not something that was planned at a uh, a level of the military that would ensure its success. Mm-hmm. In fact, you see the, you know, the, 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 the top guy that they've kind of put forward as the ringleader, you know, he retired from the military a year ago. It, it's just, it's just, but to get to your question about the response, then the, the response, the knee jerk response is, oh, we support this democratically elected government. This is, this is what we have to, we have to do. And it, 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 it reminds me of so much of the statements that were made around Goering, Hitler, and the Nazis in 1933, mm-hmm. when they had that similar incident, that's why we talked about the Reichstag fire. You know, it was it was a, a communist conspiracy in the sense that you had a couple of patsies and a couple of Comintern guys in, in in Berlin who may or may not have known something about it, but the the, the actual event was was pretty much a non-event as far as a threat to the to the you know German National Socialist Party's regime but then it was used as that pretext to consolidate power in exactly the same way Erdogan is well and I think and the, the response from the international community was exactly the same then to Chancellor Hitler right as it as it as it has been to uh, to, to President Erdogan well, and the and the other details around the event are share a lot of similarities as well. So when you when we talk about, it's not as though there weren't Turkish pilots and soldiers who were, you know, actually thinking they were participating in a coup or or you know, that they truly were. And very similar with the Reichstag fire. So whether or not um, it really was this sort of false flag event, you could still make the argument that these these this Dutch young man who was uh, arrested for the fire. Maybe he did set the fire. Yeah, I and, think he did. And and ultimately, that it could have been encouraged to do that. But when, when you actually look at the underlying response, you see, oh, well, a call was made to 
where I, I believe it was actually Goebbels, not Goering, and, and uh, Hitler having having dinner. Right. And the first time the call comes through, they they hang up because it's a prank and they assume that it's not real. And so the the response time of actually the fire brigade brigades in Berlin. To, to respond to this took an extraordinarily long time and just enough time to make sure that the fire was out of control and was able to do enough damage to, to be an actionable type of event. So a lot of similarities just starting yeah. from the very beginning. But where I want to go with this, it, it's not just the response of Secretary of State, President, Merkel, who, whoever, right? It's not, it's not just the, the, the response of those leaders. But I also think, I like to think about what's the response if I were living in Ankara today? Or if I were in Berlin in 1933, or if I'm, as I am, an American voter and market participant in 2016. Because I, I think about how difficult it is to, I'll say, survive, to, to, to go along, because you have to go along, I think, in your behavior as an individual, as a, as a non-power that be like we are. Well, otherwise you risk being marginalized as the crazy guy in the corner with the tinfoil hat ranting and raving. Um, right. Either putting or, yourself in or danger. Or worse, either putting in yourself in danger Turkey, if you're there. Right. Or, or if you're a market participant in, in the U.S. in 2016, right. lo- not making money. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, right. The ultimate crime. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, there are the external factors like that as well, but I think there are, there are internal ones that we we, we impute on, onto ourselves. I mean, when you think of 1933 in, in Germany, you know, this is this is a country that has finally decided they can be feel national pride again, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, and Hitler, for better or worse, was was giving them this this feeling of national pride in response to you know what they saw as the an unjust end to the First World War, and obviously all the 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 trials and tribulations that came as a result of uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 war reparations and everything that ha- that happened after World War One, and the the language that that was used by by Hitler in, in, in describing it after the fact, I think it was. Uh, uh, two months later, when he's uh, passing the uh, the enabling acts, I think yeah. it was, yeah. which really, I mean, that was that was it. That was for, it. for the Weimar Republic. It's Hitler, all Hitler after that for the next uh, for the next decade. Uh, decade. And uh, all of the language, it was not. I don't think he mentioned communism once. It was all atheistic organizations. Mm-hmm. It was an appeal to, to to German Christianity, right? The Volk. And, and so it becomes this internal thing where. To be what it is that you aspire to be and to actually have this sort of self-integrity, you had to believe this and you had to go along with it. So it wasn't even just marginalization. It was just, you know, ego protection um, and the way that these people had, had, had thought about themselves as, yes, we're, we're, we're the German Christians and these atheistic organizations are attacking us from us without. I have to believe this. Well, that's the thing. You, it, it, you have all these pressures that make you even if you're going to comply in your behavior, right, you're going to go along to get along. Let's say you're in Ankara or Berlin in 33. You may think, well, I'm going to resist in my heart. Right. And we think about that with markets today. Well, you know, I, I'm going to go, I'm not going to fight the fed. I'll go along with, with, with clearly what they want us to do, right. To, to buy financial assets, and push up those prices, but I can still resist in my heart, but it's really hard to resist in your heart. I got this great note from, from, from one of the readers who was saying that, that this, this most recent Epsilon Theory note had really touched him because he, he feels this in every aspect of his life, his struggle, the, really the struggle, the dissonance we have between what we have to do to, to get along in the world as it is and what he, he believes in his heart. And he said I've, I've, it, it's a struggle with himself. 
right? Because it, it, it is hard to believe one thing in your heart, but your actions are all against that or, or in conflict with that. He says it's a problem at home because his, his, his spouse, in an important ways, trusts the storytellers more than she trusts him that they must know something that you don't. And I, God, I get that with, with, well, with well, my wife. Well, we all get that at well, home, right? Well, what's going on right now with, in the, in the, you know, getting back to politics in the U S in 2016, it's the same it's, thing. It's the same thing. I, you, every, people who listen to this podcast and have heard me rant or, or follow my Twitter feed know how I feel about, um, uh, Hillary, which is not, or not positive feelings that I hold for correct. Right, um, right. And, but I've, but, and even knowing that the narrative machine has been cranked up into overdrive to anti-Trump, be anti-Trump right now and scare everybody for, and with probably with good reason. Okay. And I think it's warranted, but probably later than the meet, then I think a lot of media members are doing these. It's the catch up, right? Yeah. It's the catch up, right? right. We, we gave Trump this pass and look at this. Supposedly we've created. I yeah. mean, that's again, part yeah. of the narrative right. as well, but you know, and, and it was, I think this, Right now, it's all about the nukes, right? The new storyline on Trump is, okay, he's so crazy that he's going to start nuking everybody. Uh, and that's at least on my Twitter. That's, I see, I'm seeing that a lot on Twitter. Yep. And, it was, yep. and it was fed today by, uh, I think, uh, Joe Scarborough uh, talking to uh, Michael Hayden on CNBC. And passing, Michael Hayden, and Michael Hayden who I, who, who, oh who I don't trust. You know, you, you oh, my God. Talk about a, narr- somebody, a narrative yeah. creator, yeah. right? Right. But he was... So Scarborough and Hayden are on, and Scarborough's passing along literally like a third-hand story about somebody that he talked to who knew about Trump getting a briefing on, on sec- national security. And according to Scarborough, at three times in an hour, Trump asked, why can't we just nuke them? You know, I'll use, right. use nukes offensively, right? And, th- and that is uh, – and you know, that's when Hayden said, well, I, can't, I don't think I can vote for this guy, you know, this guy. And he kind of encouraged that line, that line of thinking. So – but I – it is – and it's having an effect on me. Right? Sure. And, and it's not that I'm a Trump voter. I would never vote. I would. I'm a. I'm a none of the. I'm a. I'm right. You're, you're none I'm of a Brewster's above. Millions. Richard Pryor. None yes. of, you know. Yeah. Uh, right. 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 No, none of the above. You know, voter. But uh, it's having an effect on me, even though I know that's the intent of it. It's when the narrative machine gets cranked up um, to tell you these stories. It's very powerful. Well, this is what we started the conversation with, right? When we read a story that we don't know directly, right? We're we're biologically evolved to for it to have an effect on us, and it does. And it does, and it's and it's so hard to resist, right? Because with the, the you know, if as the Borg might say, resistance is futile, right? You know, it's, it's, it's perhaps not futile, but it is really hard, especially in our business of, of of giving I'll call it financial advice, which is ultimately I think our the business we're in as investors or allocators or advisors. But I think the the, the difference here, because I think all of these these things are. This has happened. This has been part of, as you mentioned, human society forever. I mean, these are yes. we're social animals. I was Napoleon who said history is a set of lies agreed upon. Right? This is nothing new. But what is new, I think, is that in these circumstances, whether it's politics or getting back to markets, is the is the absence of alternatives. Right. And that this impulse to need to believe something reaches a very very new dynamic and a new height. When the alternative is non-existent, and in, in the political sense, it becomes this sort of mental gymnastics people arrive at to argue why, well, the email scandal is not a really big thing. No, it's 
it's Watergate it's to the 10th power. And why people will say Donald Trump talking about nukes is, don't worry about it. He wouldn't. He yeah, he doesn't really mean that. that. He doesn't really mean that. And, yeah. and, and so it becomes mental gymnastics because there is no alternative. And I think in markets, mm. we're looking at how we invest our, our, our portfolios and we're looking at how we're allocating them. We all know equities are expensive. Bonds are expensive. Real estate's expensive. It's expensive here internationally in emerging markets. There is no cheap asset. And we know that forward-looking returns, if there's any linkage between what's going on fundamentally in the world and the returns we have to expect from investment assets, that there's absolutely no way we're going to meet the target returns that most institutions, most individuals, income targets that the that, that, that most people around the world have over the next 5, 10, 15 years. It's simply not going to happen given the current structures, especially an unwillingness to, to use leverage in portfolios that, that most investors have. But because there is no alternative or because investors do not perceive there to be an alternative, they must believe. They must believe the central banks. They must believe equities. You know, there really isn't that downside. There is this, this buoyancy to it. And as long as enough of them believe it, it's true. It keeps going. So there's this famous um, psychology experiment about they've never done this on, on humans, which you'll understand why in a, in, in a moment. Uh, but it was uh, done with, with animal studies. Back in the days when you could do, and I'm going to describe the experiment. Horrible things, yeah, to horrible things to animals, right? Yeah, and but it's but it's basically the notion of, of what is the psychological response when there's no choice, mm. right? And, when, and, and this is the point of Hobson's choice, right? Because that Hobson, if you if for anyone doesn't know, right, what we call Hobson's choice, it comes from a guy who uh, in London he ran a um, a livery stable, right, and. Uh, You'd come in and say, "Well, I'd, I'd like to, 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 you know, lease a, a horse for to pull my carriage, right?" And said, "Okay, uh, you can have you can have any horse you like, um, so long as it's this one, the one that's right next to the door, the one that's closest to the to, to the door." So it was known as because then he dominated this industry in London for some period of time. So that's what the source of this this phrase, Hobson's choice, the choice that's not really a choice. So Henry Ford saying, yeah, you can have your Model T in any color you like, so long as it's black. Right? <laughs> and, and these are the choices we have now, whether we're talking about investing or voting, right? Yeah, you can have, you can have, you know, it, Republican or Democratic candidate, so long as, you know, it, you're voting for someone who's unqualified for office, right? There, 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 there is no choice. It's a choice. It's not really a choice. But for asset owners. Well, As we nailed down to it. Oh, well, wait, I got to tell you the animal story. Oh, oh the animal. Right. Oh, they're, right. Oh, right. Because you're right. The, the one response that I think that humans make is that we make then ourselves believe in our heart of hearts that the choice we're making, which wasn't really a choice, is the, is the right thing to do. Right. It's a, it's a, it, is, it, it is a choice. And it's, and, it's, and it's what we should be doing. There's another response, though which is just to exit, to give up. And, and this was the experience of these dogs that they, <laughs> really, this is back in the day. I right? choose not to run. You choose, so they, they would have a dog and the, you'd give them a, le- they were on a, a pad, there was a, a divider in the, in the room and the dog could escape the electric current that was going through the pad by jumping over the divider into the safe area of the room. And so they would, the, the test was, all right, let's give them a shock. How much of a shock does it take to, to get them to, to, to jump, to make the choice? What sort of discomfort is required to make them make the choice to jump over? And then some 
I don't know, some mingly disciple or somebody some like sadist. that. Yeah, some sadist came out there. Wow, well, what if the other side was also was also shocked, was also electrified? What does the dog do? And the dog at first jumps from side to side, but ultimately the dog just lays stops, down just lays down and just it. takes it. Right. And 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 I think we're they they they, they just they, they give up. And and I'm actually seeing more and more of that around politics. It's it, it's it, or or investing. It's it's an effort. I gets back to that quote you started with, Michael. You just we're just exiting from the casino. We're exiting from the building. We see this with political well, leaders. Renzi, right? This was your. This was. Did you tweet this, or were we just? Were we just? I tweeted this. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, when R- Renzi pushing with middle pair weak kicker. <laughs> well, well, Renzi. Okay, so 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 Renzi's got this this uh, constitutional reform vote coming up in October. Which, first of all, he's making the same mistake, if it was a mistake, that the, the Cameron made, which we've described as, you know, a lawyer asking a witness a question where you don't know the answer, right? You, you don't put these referenda up for popular vote if you don't know you've got the votes. Unless you want to, unless, unless you unless want to get out. Up. Unless, unless you're, you're the dog giving lying up. down, you're tired unless of being shot. Unless you're shocked. giving up. You're tired of being shot. And that's what Renzi did, because just a couple of days ago, he said, all right, you know what? If I lose this election... I'm out of here. I quit. The government falls. Yeah. Now I, I I get to go work for Goldman. I, right, right, right. Sorry, Sorry or, to my friends at Goldman. Or 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 no, no. You can be like Ben Bernanke. You know, go 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 work for Citadel. Right. You know. Right. So, yeah. Yes. Insert yeah. insert insert systemically to make a fail institution. Uh, in, here. Insert SIFI institution. That's right. Uh, so what Renzi is doing? This is why I said, well, it's you know, it's like going in poker, going all in with a middle pair and a, and a so-so kicker, which for all of you non-poker players is not what you typically want to do, unless you're either A, bluffing, or B, giving up. You're on tilt. You're saying, all right, yeah, I got a small stack. Shoot, let's, let's, let's see if I can... We saw some of that behavior last night at the poker table uh, we by did, we, uh, we some did of actually. our fellow players who will go unnamed. Right. Not, not sitting here at this, <laughs> at, on this podcast. I'm like, That's yeah, correct. But some of the others. But I, I think you're seeing a lot of that. What were you describing? You know, Cameron kind of whistling his whistling. Uh, his happy tune as he leaves uh, Downing Street. Yeah. Don't, right? throw me, don't throw me uh, into that, that briar patch, patch. Right? I'm done. These guys, it feels These guys like are tired. They're done. They're tired. Which is dangerous. Oh, my God. Right? I mean, this is where you have to, this is where you're, you're to use your phrase, your risk antennae must be, well, you know, quivering a little well, bit. Well, imagine right? if you're Claude Juncker, right? He's the, the head of the Eurogroup, former PM of Luxembourg, but you know he's been at the heart of these narrative creations to try to keep Europe together, and he's been doing this for seven freaking years. Yeah. These guys have been sitting at the longest poker game of all oh, time, and, and those of us who play poker, you know that poker is when you get tired, boredom, and it's, it's boredom. Most of it's boredom. It's it's you got to if you're going to play poker well, you have to be willing to tolerate a lot of boredom and just sit there and do nothing. And it just gets grind in seven years it's a of this. Grind. Well, and, then, and then once you you know you feel like you're done, there's a guy over your shoulder who stakes you again. You're back in the game, and it just keeps on going. Yeah. Well, but yeah. it, but I think for investors, you know this this idea of of being tired or the idea of giving up. I don't think it looks like being uninvested. When so when you think about what giving up looks like for investors, in particular asset owners, I think it looks like continue you know really hewing to convention. Sure. And, and the safe place for sure. asset owners right now is that is giving up. It's right. fingers and ears, hands over eyes, seven and a half percent return. 
we can get there. We can get there doing what we, we've done historically. And yeah, we, you know, we uh, a couple of us on Twitter uh, had uh, had posted this. I think it was from the journal. Um, this this great exhibit of really what what funds are going to have to do and how they would have had to change their asset allocation to get to a, a seven and a half percent return. I want you to come back to it, but yeah. I want to let I want to let listeners know this was from the journal and it was called "Pension Funds Pile on Risk Just to Get a Reasonable Return." And it's the subtitle is an investor used to get a seven and a half percent return by holding safe bonds to earn that. Now research find takes a more volatile mix. And the key is the chart and Callan, our friends at Callan and associates have provided this wonderful chart showing what you needed to, how, what kind of risk and what your portfolio needed to look like in 95 and 05 and in 2015 to reach a seven and a half percent target, which as we know from our, from our days in the public fund world uh, or managing public fund money, uh, that's, that's kind of the typical action. Typical bogey. Typical yeah. bogey, seven and a half percent. You could get a hundred percent of that return. You could get all that return by just investing in bonds twenty years. Twenty ago years ago, and and having a, an expected standard deviation or risk level of six percent. And today, the the chart shows that uh, from Callan that you need all these other asset classes, different kinds of equities, much much smaller uh, allocation to bonds, twelve percent, and you wind up t- reaching that seven and a half percent to Rusty's point, but with seventeen percent annualized standard deviation. And to be clear. Even this, in my view, and I is think a, they count Yeah, Rusty, Rusty says you can't even do it. There's with no this. way. No, There's yeah. no way. The, yeah, the, you'd have to use leverage on I this. Would agree. I would agree with that, but that, but that is what – Yeah. But you think about what, what are asset owners doing today. And if you look at the average, whether it's an endowment or foundation or, or a pension plan in the United States, typically the volatility that they're running at on an annualized basis is somewhere between 7 and 10%. Now, it may differ, and obviously we're taking into account some smoothing of private and illiquid assets, but – that's essentially the portfolio and the level of risk you would have needed to take it back in, in you, if you look at this uh, journal article in 2005. So if you look at the average portfolio, you're going to see something that looks very much like what it looked like in 2005. And that that is such a strong convention that you're really not seeing boards, trustees, you know, CIOs, OCIOs, anyone really respond to this and say, hey, we've got to do something different. And you know, there's only, I think, two or three plans I can think of right now that allow explicit leverage in their portfolios uh, at the at the pension plan level in the United States, um, and you know as as you kind of think about it, and this you know not to, to to malign anyone who puts together projections, but ultimately you know the kind of companies, whether they're banks or asset managers or others who are putting together projections for forward looking returns, you know they they need those returns to be able to build up to. A seven and a half. Seven and a half percent. You got to get there because they're they're angling for but, business. But this and is money. the problem, right? Because it's it's like the you know you're asking for directions from the from the farmer in in Maine who mm-hmm. says ah, I can't get there from here, right? You know, right? That, that's the, the pet cemetery reference. Is that? Yeah, yeah. There's, there, there's that too, right? A little Stephen King reference. But but yeah, you can't get there from here. I think that's what we're describing when we're talking about traditional asset allocation. And so, what do you do if you can't get there from here? You, you basically give up by believing in your heart of hearts what I, I think is just not true, that you can get there from here, and you, 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 you hope that it doesn't collapse on your watch, and so you've, you've, you push it off to the, to and the you, next poor soul who's yeah. got, to, to, got, to, got to manage that portfolio. And you make your name by 
adding another 30 basis points by moving from active management to passive management, and you issue press releases and all sorts of things but talking about guys, that. Guys, it's, it's worse than you think, though. This is, this is I, I want to give a hat tip out to a, a great Twitter follower, a great finance Twitter follow, uh, Meb Faber, yes. who uh, shared this uh, a couple days ago on his Twitter feed, which was a State Street survey of return expectations of 400 institutional investors with over $1.2 trillion in AUM, 10.9%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's their. That's what they expect. That's yes. their expectation. Yes, you right. Know, it's bonkers. And uh, right. well, anyway, that's ho- horrifying. Ten point nine percent. So it's wor- It's even worse than the, what we were talking than the about. Seven point five. Seven yeah. and a half. We've got right. people that actually believe that, or, or at least they, they're saying publicly. Right, saying publicly, right? This, uh, and it's just you know, those of us, I think, or at least our side of the table would say, you know not a snowball's chance in hell. If that is the expectation that is driving portfolio management decisions, I'm not making investment advice, but investors are under-risked. Investors are not taking enough risk to achieve any of their objectives. But, but see, this is, this is what happens that, that when you, when you, when you, when you can't get there from here, when you're under these constant pressures to change your, what you believe in your heart of hearts, just to go along in a world where you don't have any good choices then you inevitably take things or go down a path that you are told to go down by a missionary, by what you read, by what you see. And you, I think, almost willfully ignore the risks that are in that path, right? So, so you go into equities because there's no alternative. I need to get income. I need to get yield. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's, what's the duration risk in, in embedded in equities, right? Does, does anybody ever even think about that? Right when you're when you're buying yeah. uh you know a yield for uh, you know some some stock that's got some 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 yield but then you get, with it you get paid to wait <laughs> yeah right right you get paid to wait <laughs> you get paid to wait what's the crowding risk what's the behavioral risk in this stuff and and I keep thinking about the well is there another way is there a way to get I'll call it convexity again that ten dollar word just means that optionality in your portfolio in a policy driven world. A policy-controlled world. I think it requires thinking about constructing your portfolio differently than is traditionally done. That it's not you're not finding diversification with you know an asset class mix because there, it, there, there there's no good choices here. There, there, it requires a whole different thought process, and and I and I'm and I'm wrestling with what that might. Be. Well, you outlined it pretty well, I think, in, Hobbs, in your Hobson's Choice letter Thank you. from a Thanks. few weeks ago or a couple months ago and your five easy pieces, right, on how to navigate and survive what you're calling, I think, aptly the silver age of the central banker. Right, right. not watch, the golden age. And watching these guys shove middle pair with weak kicker yes. is very indicative that we're in the silver age. Absolutely. Right? That, that is, that's exactly the era we're in, where they're tired, where we're, we're, it's a constant the risk, Battle the for risk, them. The risk of an accident. The risk of an accident here, right, is seems to be right, as these guys get tired. Just like if you watch on it, watch the World Series of Poker and you see a really smart poker player who's down to the final couple tables make a really dumb decision. Right. Right. It's they're they're exhausted. They're just they're they're wiped out. They're wiped out. So so right. I I, I thanks. I I think it is important, and and I think. I think it really does require this approach of, of thinking about your life, your investments, your portfolio, your money, your client's money, 
from a different perspective. It's not trying to do what we've been trained to do, right? Which is that we're going to construct our portfolio. We're going to construct our lives behaviors based on some expected utility calculation. We've got the odds. We're going to figure this out. We've got a crystal ball where we can make some accurate prediction based on what's happened in the past. I just really don't think that works anymore. But isn't the right way to think of isn't the, 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 I guess the, you've taught me, right. How to, how to, you've got to look at things through the, the right lens. That's right. Okay. Well, the good news is for, for all of us as individual investors, or, or some of us as professional investors, depending on our, on our yeah. clientele, we're not pension plans, right? We don't have to hit this. Action you don't road. have to own we anything. We don't have to, we don't have to own anything. And we don't have to, we don't have to go crazy constructing a portfolio to meet some somewhat mm-hmm. arbitrary, some return arbitrary target. return target. And I think right. that's kind of, that to me, that's a big takeaway from, from what you've been writing about and what we talk about internally is, and, and I think it's consistent with the comment you just made, think about your own life. What are you trying to get out of your portfolio? And don't be unreasonable about what you can expect, and make your life decisions based on that. This is what I'm saying. Right? This, this goes beyond investing. This is not. This is about you. you can't. Re, you know this old. This old notion. I'm going to retire at 65, and I've got X dollars. I'm going to run my. I'm going to run my. You know my math out, and it's right. going to, it's going to last right. me. You know you need to be realistic. Right. Good luck with what, that. Be realistic about what those numbers are. And the good news is we've got a. We've got a lot of interesting healthcare developments for for prolonging lives, and when people are living longer and healthier if they make the right you know decisions, of course. You know, of course, and subject to the the vagaries of, of chance and terrible things like cancer and whatnot. But in general, you've got an opportunity to live, to, at least in the developed world, to live longer, a longer, healthier life. And you know, working a working part time work for a longer period of time is something that's that's being made more possible by this gig economy, right? Yeah, I can't tell you how many how many. Uh, you know, semi-retired uh, guys and gals that I ride around with in, a new, in Uber or Lyft, who, who oh, it's, it's same wonderful. thing, right, right, and they love it. Uh, so, the, but but I think that's kind of the world. But, but Jeremy, got... these are they're all these structural changes. These these are not these are not changes on the margins. These are real changes in the structure of how our world's put together. Mm-hmm. And and it, and everything you're describing means that a, a historical correlation that some some idea that went into planning our traditional methods of planning our lives or our portfolios just doesn't work anymore. And, and, and I think it really is important to take a different perspective, not one of, again, this notion of, of, of projected return, but to think in terms of scenarios, futures, and thinking about how do I minimize my maximum risk? I, I think this whole notion of what's called minimax regret is such a, a, a powerful, again, perspective, whether we're talking about our lives, whether we're talking about our investments. Um, and a little plug, you can read a lot about Minimax Regret in a number of your yes. uh, Epsilon Theory pieces. For those of you who are, who are new to Epsilon Theory, it's a, it's a great construct, I think, for some deci- to help with decision-making, um, and whether it's financial or otherwise. Financial or otherwise. It, it's something, and, it, and you know what? It works for these pension funds as well that we were, we were talking about before, because the, the minimax regret theory is used a lot in uh, defense planning, also climate studies. It's used anywhere in a situation where you've got to make a decision today and you don't know whether your decision is going to be, quote unquote, the right decision to maximize your, your, your outcome for 10 years or 20 years, right? which is exactly the situation a pension fund finds itself in, right? You've got to make decisions today mm-hmm. and you're not going to know if you're right for 10, 20 years. 
And by which time it's too late. And I, you, you can't go back and change the decisions from 10 years previously, of course, but you, you, you can't do this by making course corrections lo- along the way. So, so how do you base that, that, that decision that you have to make now? I would argue you don't make it on the basis of, well, historically, if I do this, this will maximize my returns. No, you have to think, look, if I do this or, or this future state of me, where have I got the most risk? Where have I got the most regret? And let's try to take a course of action today that minimizes that, right? It's not maximizing a return. It's not expected utility. It's minimizing regret. And it's just a very different way of looking at things. You're grimacing, Rusty. You I, I'm, I'm grimacing because I, I think, and I hear what you're saying, but I also think that that bias is what leads people to I think really, in some cases... Take too little risk. Well, either to take too little risk or to avoid taking the right amount of investment risk because regret is driven by exogenous factors. The, and this gets back to convention. And and for most, for many investors, whether it's a financial advisor who's thinking about proposing uh, a portfolio that has convex solutions and is non-traditional, or whether it is a, a right. pension board trustee who's thinking about, should we you know, allow our fund to to use leverage or whether it is a a state representative who's deciding whether or not he's going to support the very unpopular idea of reducing benefits right. payments from a, from a pension plan for almost all of those individuals the decisions that come out of them cannot possibly be the objective result of an analytical exercise about investment outcomes they're the outcome of minimizing their maximum regret which is ostracization being different career risk. losing their career job risk. Career risk, you know, but but I'll tell you in the I think in the financial advisory world, the maximum regret or the the, the biggest risk the, the the regret is is not participating in an up market, keeping up with the neighbors, right? It's keeping up with the neighbors. Yeah. It, it's not, it, and I think with a lot of financial advisors, minimax regret doesn't lead you to take a very conservative portfolio. It can lead you to take, a, you know, a portfolio that that goes along with that that market because that's your biggest regret. It's not keeping up. I don't know. It's hard. Well these are hard questions. I think we've I think we've uh, we've raised a lot of very interesting issues, but I do th- I do think that the five easy pieces is a really something that I recommend our listeners, particularly those who haven't read all of Ben's pieces, to go back and check out Hobson's Choice. Um, Rusty Gwen, who I'm looking at right here, is is in the process of coming out with uh, some really interesting content that I think investors will uh, will enjoy in terms of uh, just what we've been talking about, putting together a solid decision-making framework and understanding what matters and what doesn't when you uh, when you construct portfolios. And, and that may be a, a great topic for uh, a future podcast um, after we get some of the written material out. Works for me. We've got to make the sandbox a little bit bigger, right? I look forward to it. Excellent. Well, thanks, guys. I think I think we're running. Before at, we go, oh, before we go, Michael, do you like surprises, Ben? Uh, yeah, I like surprises. In, not he, in the form he said of with coup. some hesitation. Not in the form of the coup. Yeah. Well, okay. We decided to honor your third anniversary with Salient and writing Epsilon Theory with a little something. So please. Wow. Do I get to get to open this? Yes, this, this, this oh. on air, right? So oh, and I want you. Like I want you to know Carla Siemens wrapped this for you. Wow. Uh, she, did she, did a, she did a masterful well, job here. Yeah, I mean, this is like an audio version of those YouTube unwrapping videos. 
Is that a thing? Which are, oh, have you not, have you not seen that? You're not aware of this? And the yeah. hands videos? The entire subculture built around watching people unwrap Just open boxes. consumer products. Right. We live in a strange world. A very strange world. Have you ever watched one? It's actually kind of... I know you can oddly. watch people eat. It's, it's oddly compelling. You can watch people play video games. You well, that's watch. a bit. Well, that's the most I know popular. Twitch is huge. I know that's huge. I, I thought yeah. that was bizarre when that started, but the unboxing is a big. Is a big I, I, obviously, I've got to practice my unboxing. Right, I, I used to do radio play by play. Ben has got the box out. Uh, <laughs> he's into Who's the from, he's, he's into the interior it? box. It looks like a Ooh. Dunhill. Dunhill. Box. It is a beautiful pen with with modern portfolio. You know. P-E-N. Pen, y equals right. alpha plus beta plus epsilon. Oh. This is beautiful. Well, we'll get, we got to take a picture of this and... Uh, and we'll tweet it. We'll, we'll tweet this. That is amazing. Well, we're, For we're, our writer, we're glad you're here, Ben. Three years. I'm glad I'm here, too. Flown by. The and, next, and, 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 the and, next, and the next three are going to be even better and bigger. And huge. 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 <laughs> this is beautiful, Michael. Thank, thanks so much. Of course. I know you're trying to bring back the pencil... Uh, so yes. I, I, I was laughing uh, when you got us obscene pencils yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'll, I'll, I'll take the uh, those. Point. I won't tweet. No, no, don't, don't, don't tweet the, the, the obscene pencils. Um, this is beautiful. Thanks. I've got I've got one last thing to leave you guys with, Please. and it's a it's a trading places reference. Don't you think that the Clintons and the Trumps actually have a one dollar bet on the outcome of this election? Well, you, you know that was the the, the tweet of of. Uh, I got you know, Ch- Chelsea and Ivanka being, you know, buddies, and, and I think that's right. That's right. Yeah, I reached me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the political that's right. Yeah. that's right. Yeah, I'm stunned. Right. Right. I'm stunned. Right. Yeah. 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 There's a yeah. there's a really class. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I just had to leave you with that. <laughs> yeah, and they hang out with Thomas Friedman and. Until next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. The Epsilon Theory team will be off for the next few weeks for summer vacation. We'll return in late August with new podcasts. Thanks for listening.